the song Chest Crawl from the band Guantanamo Baywatch. It appears on their album Chest Crawl, and you can find out more about that band over at their website at GuantanamoBaywatch.com. Or you can just follow the link in the show notes over at MonsterKidRadio.net. That's the homepage for this podcast, Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to covering the classic and sometimes not so classic monster movies of yesteryear. You're going to hear that song in its entirety at the end of this episode, but that will be after part one of my discussion with returning guest Paul McComas. We're going to talk about another zombie movie. That's two weeks in a row we've done zombie movies here on Monster Kid Radio. See, back in the day, I used to do a zombie movie podcast, Mail Order Zombie. Did that for five years, and I never talked about I Walked With a Zombie on that show. But I did talk about it on a podcast. I talked about it back in 2010 on episode 96 of the B-Movie cast. There'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. That might have actually been my very first appearance on the B-Movie cast. It was a lot of fun to talk about that movie with Vince, and it was a lot of fun to talk about the movie again with Paul in this week's episodes of Monster Kid Radio. If I had reviewed this movie on Mail Order Zombie back in the day, I would have given it a rating of... Five headshots out of five. This is a great film. This is one of Paul's favorites, and I think it's probably one of my favorite zombie movies of all time as well. I cannot wait to dive into what this movie is, and more importantly, what this movie means with Paul. And just so you know, this is going to get a little spoilery, but the movie's 70 years old. This is the 70th anniversary of this film, so if you haven't seen it by now, I think that's more on you than me or Paul. Now, Paul's been on the show before. You can find out about him over at his website, paulmccomas.com, or again, link in the show notes over at our website. He is the co-author of the book, Fit for a Frankenstein, which takes place in the Universal Frankenstein world. It fills in the gap between two of the Frankenstein films from the Universal Cycle, and it's a fun read. Published by Walkabout Publishing, you can buy it on Amazon, you can buy it as an ebook from Amazon or over at Smashwords, or you can buy it directly from his website. Again, that's paulmccomas.com, and he takes a dollar off the retail price if you buy the book that way. So go check that out. He co-authored that with Greg Sturrett, and it's an award-winning book. Recently won an award, so really... Monster Kids, you got to have this in your collection. Let's get some of the business out of the way. You can always get a hold of me by email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can give me a call and leave us a voicemail at 503-4795-MKR. I do have some feedback in the hopper, so to speak, and if you want to add your voice to the feedback, well, drop me a line because I am going to be doing a special feedback episode down the line. If you have any comments about anything that we've talked about on the show in the past, or just have a monster kid friendly type topic you want to rap about, well, you know how to get a hold of us. No excuses. Now, you found this show because you're either listening to it courtesy of your Stitcher app on your smartphone, you downloaded it from our website, or you subscribed to it over on iTunes. Well, for any new listeners who happen to listen to the show through iTunes, I'm going to ask you to go over there and review the show. Give us an honest rating. Here's the challenge. If we can get 50 reviews in the iTunes store, and honest reviews, I'm not just looking for a handout. If we can get 50 honest reviews about the show over in the iTunes store, I launch a new show. A new supplemental podcast as part of the Monster Kid Radio Network. That's the deal. It'll be a regular show. It'll be monthly. It'll be relevant to what we talk about here on Monster Kid Radio. It'll just be a little bit more focused on one particular topic. I'm not going to tell you what that is until we get at least 35 reviews in the iTunes store. So challenge number one, 35 reviews. I'll tell you what the new show will be. 50 reviews. We produce and launch the show. We are active over on Facebook. You can find our group and our page. 
Real easy to join the group. I approve those requests pretty quickly. And, of course, we always appreciate as many likes as we can get on the page. You know, I've talked enough here. I want to go ahead and get into part one of our discussion about I Walked With a Zombie with Paul McComas right after this. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune in to B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. Seventy years ago, saw the release of a film that has been called the best voodoo film of all time. It is produced by Val Luton and is thick with all things that we associate with Val Luton Productions. Deft use of shadow and light, more than passing character depth, wonderful stories, brisk, efficient storytelling. I'm talking about I Walked with a Zombie. And I've got returning guest Paul McComas on the show to talk about this film. He's actually somebody who's called this movie the best voodoo movie ever made in private correspondence. So, of course, I had to have him on to talk about this film. How's it going, Paul? Oh, great, Derek. And it's a real pleasure to be back with you. And I'm excited to talk about one of my favorite movies, probably my second favorite movie after High Noon. Wow. One of my favorite uh, fellow film buffs in the 70th anniversary year. Yeah, as you you pointed out. It was released in April of 1943. So, uh, you know, this is an older film from the 40s, but I think it still holds up. It's a pretty short film, so you don't have to worry about getting too bogged down in what's going on. It's still, I think, a very relevant film in terms of its storytelling. In so many ways. And yeah, it is short. It's only 69 minutes, but like all of the, the Luton Turner collaborations, a real uh, study in less is more. And it's interesting. People tend to fall into one camp or the other. As I heard you introducing it, it struck me that you're mentioning the producer, and many people do see Luton as the auteur of those RKO, uh, low-budget, supernatural, psycho-supernatural thrillers. <laughs> and I admire Luton, but I go first to Jacques Tourneur, the director, uh, in at least the case of the three that he did with Luton, which I would list in order of merit. Um, I Walked with a Zombie, followed closely by Cat People and and then uh, The Leopard Man and Third, all fine films. I think I Walked with a Zombie is the masterpiece. And uh, I think that those three, because of Jacques Tourneur's input as director, are head and shoulders above the other uh, Val Luton productions from that series. I like some of them. I like Isle of the Dead and and Body Snatcher and and some of the other ones. But... uh, when Luton's vision was combined with Turner's, uh, then I think uh, you saw the best of the best. Oh, definitely. And those three films do stand out amongst all of them. I think Luton's influence and impact on the films is undeniable, but 
there's something to be said for the fact that the three films that you mentioned are also my three favorite Luton films. You know, and, and Tornor's ability as a director can't be discounted at all. I mean, he would also go on to do things like Curse of the Demon, which is a fantastic film. So away from and, that, and, and one of the best film and one of the best films noir of all time out of the past, and an exceptional late Twilight Zone episode, fifth season Twilight Zone episode called Night Call. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, Luton was hit or miss. Turner always, I think, hit. So yeah, and, and, and nowhere better than I and I walked with a zombie. Where to begin? <laughs> <laughs> well, oh. how did Turner and Luton get together? Do you know the story of how they started collaborating together? I know less about how they started than kind of what the process was like once they did. Okay. And my understanding is that when Turner was working on those films, he was given a title a sensationalist title, <laughs> I Walked with a Zombie, which was right. a, a magazine article title, and The Cat People, The Leopard Man, and given some garish poster art. And then he would turn to one of his favorite writers, one or more of his favorite writers, in this case, Kurt Siodmak, who, of course, was an MVP uh, screenwriter over at Universal, the auteur of the original Wolfman, uh, just for starters, Kurt Siodmak and Ardell Ray, and would say to them, write me something smart that works with this title. And they would bring back a smart horror script, and, and the story goes that Turner would then page through it, and every time he saw a monster, uh, he'd cross it out, and he'd say, now we film. And that's <laughs> how you get you know, these amazing, uh, amazingly ambiguous films, particularly for that era, a very literalist kind of era, wartime to boot. But these movies that are Rorschach tests in a way, or, or like the blind men with the elephant, you know, it, it's, a, it, it's a tree, it's a spear, it's a snake, it's, it, it depends on your point of view. And so you can watch I Walked with the Zombie and be utterly convinced that there is a supernatural element and that zombies, Carrefour and Jessica Holland, are both The Walking Dead. Or you can watch the same movie and come out of it thinking it's a result of the guilt surrounding the adultery and the and the love triangle um, that has plagued the Holland and Rand families. Or you can come out of it saying, actually, it, it's all about the legacy of slavery and, and zombification as a metaphor for the white family that's walking around carrying their family's sins, both public and private, around with them and unable to escape those. And I mean, I can say that I've had those three reactions and others to this movie, depending on what mood I was in when I watched it on a certain day. I've probably seen the movie 20 times, and it, it always plays out a little bit differently for me, depending on what I'm looking for and and um, kind of where I'm at personally. So that's an incredible accomplishment for a very low-budget uh, movie made 70 years ago. You know, my background is with zombie movies before I launched Monster Kid Radio. I did five years of a zombie podcast. And when I came to this film originally, it was because it was a classic zombie movie. But there's also so much more going on here. I'm sure it's an iconic classic zombie film, probably one of the most important of the pre-Romero zombie cycle. I mean, I put it right up there with White Zombie in terms of its importance in that particular subgenre. I'd say it's even more important. Really? And such a better movie on many levels and not kind of bogged down in, in the stereotypes that White Zombie is. I think it's way ahead of its time in a lot of ways. But, I mean, who's the zombie in this movie? One thing I do when I teach this mm-hmm. film in a film class is I, I count the zombies. We've got two literal zombies, Carrefour, played by Darby Jones, who I see as, as a walking kind of emblem of the legacy of slavery. He's no bodybuilder. He looks 
starved. He he mm-hmm. looks like the embodiment of the visitation of torture and torment upon the black race by the white race. And he's voiceless and mute um, and, and just, uh, you know, a walking reminder of what this island, St. Sebastian, a.k.a. Haiti, is all about. And then Jessica Holland, the white woman zombie. They're the two literal zombies who may or may not be the walking dead, but certainly appear to be. Beyond that, there are moments of this movie, particularly towards the end, where Wesley Rand, the brother of Paul Holland, the lover of Jessica Holland, who has, has had an affair with his brother's wife, he's acting very much like a zombie when he, spoiler alert, kills his lover at the end. Sure. Um, and what does he use to kill her? One of the arrows in Team Misery, one of the arrows in the slave ship, mm-hmm. slave ship figurehead. He pulls it out. And, you know, how fitting, given this take on the movie, if, if you buy this take, which I, I totally do, that it is about the legacy of slavery. Paul Holland also seems haunted, enchanted, suspended, trapped, zombie-like at certain times. Mrs. Rand, the mother of both Paul and Wesley, when she's confessing to her role in, in the way things have played out, she delivers her speech in a monotone. Her eyes are open and blank. So, there are multiple zombies in this movie, depending upon how, how you want to define zombie. And people who are suspended between one life and another, one reality and another, just the way that objects are suspended in that amazing wordless scene just after the middle of the picture where the actual walk with the zombie occurs. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on at so oh, many yeah. levels. It is a wonderful zombie movie, but it's, an, it's my favorite zombie movie. It's my favorite voodoo movie. It's my second favorite movie of all time. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I like about some of these classic, quote-unquote, zombie films is there is so much going on. You see all these different themes with things like White Zombie and I Walk with a Zombie, Loss of Identity, the supplantation of one culture over another, all yeah. these things happening just beneath the surface that if you're looking for it, you can find it and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But even if you don't look for that, you're still going to find something in the film to really sure. latch on to. And the filmmaking of this is just top-notch. I yeah. just watched it for the first time, I think in about a year or so, mm-hmm. this afternoon, getting ready for our chat. Yeah. While it has been a while for me, I still remember all the iconic scenes, you know, yeah. Darby Jones in the field and, you know, the Jessica walking around. And, man, there are so many things about this movie to the, latch on to. The staircase, the staircase oh, and the yes. tower. Yeah, the staircase, which if you look at it, it, it goes from up on the left side of frame to down on the right side of frame, almost like a graph or a chart that's showing you a decline. Um, it's never seen from the other angle. And so it, it, the staircase appearing early and prominently in the film uh, and so strikingly just kind of tells you the direction that things have been going and that the, the way that things are going are, are, are going to go uh, over the course of this narrative. You know, I've got something queued up here. We did this uh, on the Cheney interview with uh, yeah. a scene from Son of Dracula. And I'll, I, I just, it's a very quick dialogue scene. And I, I just want to play this for the sake of people out there who might say this movie has nothing to do with race. This movie has nothing to do with the legacy of slavery. This is four and a half minutes into the movie. And it's a very short dialogue scene where the black carriage driver is taking our hero. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, Betsy Connell to Fort Holland. Um, and explains a little bit of the history. So I'll play it, and then okay. probably you'll substitute good uh, audio for it. <laughs> but here, here it comes. The Hollands was the most old family, miss. They brought the colored folks to the island. The colored folks in tea misery. Tea misery? What's that? A man, miss. An old man who lives in the garden at Fort Holland. 
with arrows stuck in him and a sorrowful, weeping look on his black face. Alive? No, Mitch. He's just the same as he was in the beginning, on the front side of an enormous boat. You mean a figurehead. If you say, Miss, and the enormous boat brought the long-ago fathers and the long-ago mothers of us all chained to the bottom of the boat. They brought you to a beautiful place, didn't they? If you say, Miss, if you say... If you say, Miss, if you say... I was going to bring that up, and I'm glad you chose that clip, because that just speaks volumes. It doesn't, it? She's our heroine, and she she is a, a moral person throughout this movie, but even she is blind, because she is a white woman of privilege from Canada, a career woman. That, by the way, is kind of rare to have a movie in 1943 whose point of view character and protagonist is a career woman. But she's blissfully unaware of the meaning of what this guy is saying to her. Mm-hmm. And T. Misery, to me, is a, is a character in, in the narrative that's going to play out. He's the last character shown at the end of the movie. The fade out is over T. Misery with the arrows still stuck in him, except for the one that Wesley uses to, to kill his lover, Jessica. And we first see T. Misery during some voiceover from Betsy Connell. And it's at the moment where she says the word hate, actually. Oh. Uh, that's where Turner cuts to a shot of the slave ship figurehead. It's on the word hate. So, you know, <laughs> it's there. People can see it or not, but I'm not making this stuff up. No, not at all. No, I was, <laughs> I, like I said, I'm glad you picked that clip because that's that sequence, I think, embodies the entire thing that we were just talking about. That, yeah. You know, if you say, miss, yeah, I mean, it's such a... Is gut punch too cliche to say here? Because it is a punch in the gut when yeah. you really realize what's happening here. Yeah, they brought you to a beautiful place, didn't they? Yeah, it's chained to the bottom of the boat. And, you know, I could take this further. That scene where Betsy wakes up and, and Alma the maid serves her the brioche. Well, first of all, you've got two employees of the Holland family there. They should be roughly equal in their status, but they're not because of race. And so Alma, the black maid, is serving the white servant, our heroine Betsy, and serves her this, she says, you know, I call it a puff-up, but Miss Jessica always said brioche. And as soon as Betsy puts her knife in it, it collapses. And if that's not the collapse of colonialism, (laughs) European colonialism, I don't Uh know what is. They play it for laughs. But that brioche is associated with Jessica, the pampered rich white woman, and it is a, it's a French dish. And, you know, like Haiti, the fictional St. Sebastian has French elements to it and some French words that are being used, including in the song that the balladeer delivers. And he's wonderful, isn't he? Sir Lancelot. Oh, he's yeah. great. No, and that song, the song was written for the film, I mean, obviously, but it so encapsulates everything that's going on here. Once you hear the song... You know the story. You know what's going down. Yeah. And it's performed so well. In in the early 60s, a version of that song became a hit in England with the different verses but the same chorus. (laughs) So it it had a life uh, beyond the movie. It had had an afterlife, Mm -hmm. um, appropriately. (laughs) Uh, And I love the fact that Sir Lancelot's character, the balladeer, he acts so mortified uh, about having performed the song by daylight. But then when night comes, and Wesley's passed out from drinking, and Betsy's there basically alone, uh, the balladeer sees his opportunity to tell the truth, you know, to bear witness about what's happened. Right. And he comes out of the darkness. As so many characters in this movie emerge 
mm-hmm. from the darkness. Turner does such a great job, not just with lighting, but with depth of field, too. Like that moment after they've tried the insulin shock therapy and we have a, a touching scene between Betsy and Paul. And then when Betsy leaves, Wes emerges from the darkness and he's been listening the whole time. Yeah. You know, the way Turner uses the shadows of blinds to suggest that these characters are imprisoned. The shadows of blinds that suddenly look like prison bars across the characters. Yeah. Uh, characters emerging from the darkness kind of just sort of almost ghost-like wandering into and out of each other's lives and haunting each other. The way that when multiple times when Betsy and Paul, who are are falling in love, um, are having a conversation and the music is romantic, but then the romantic music gets drowned out by the jungle drums. You know, it's this push and pull between the European and the African between uh, the subjugated and the subjugators, and the drums win every time. Mm-hmm. They get rid of that romantic music and replace it. They supplant it. And sure enough, who wins at the end of this movie? It's not the Hollands, the Rands. It's not the white family that's owned the sugar mill for generations. You can't imagine any of those characters remaining on St. Sebastian at the end of this movie. I, I think it's a foregone conclusion that they're all going to leave now. Yeah, and Saint Sebastian is Haiti. So it's standard for Haiti. And what was Haiti? It was a, it was a port between coastal Africa and the so-called New World. Well, new to the people who settled it, not to the not new to the people who'd been living there already, the indigenous people. But Haiti was a, a huge part of the slave trade. It was where slaves were brought in between being kidnapped from Africa and, and being sold in the so-called New World. And so it itself is in limbo. Haiti's in limbo. St. Sebastian is in limbo between these these two worlds. And so what better place for, for voodoo to really take hold? Voodoo was extremely empowering for the people stolen from Africa and treated as product because it was the one area where the slave had power and control. You can sell me as property, but I have this belief system that no one can take away. And so slaves would often sneak off when they could into private places at night and and hold these rituals, ceremonies, religious ceremonies, and feel some power at a time when they've been rendered all but powerless by by being treated as someone else's property. The ceremony in this movie is still 70 years later. I haven't seen a voodoo movie that is more authentic to the way I understand voodoo ceremonies to actually operate. And you'll notice that voodoo is never really presented in this movie as a force of evil. No, not at all. (laughs) Which is kind of refreshing, actually, because... Amazingly so, yeah. So many times. Right. I mean, like any religion, uh, there's good and evil within voodoo, but most evil doing in in voodoo is is done through something called the sect rouge or the red sect, um, and it's a a perversion of voodoo. But what we see in, in this movie is... Voodoo that is is bringing a community together, voodoo that is trying to keep the dead among the dead and the living among the living. The reason Carrefour is trying to bring Jessica back to the home fort is because she doesn't belong uh, at Fort Howland anymore. She is the walking dead. She's out of place among the living people. She's a curse living among them. and It's just so sophisticated. The tourner's understanding, possibly aided by the fact that he was a Frenchman, He's able maybe to see the so-called new world and the slave trade in, in a slightly different and more evolved way than maybe an American director in the 1940s would have been able to do. This movie is way ahead of its time on race. 
Definitely. And there are still elements in it that are timeless now. It's yeah. got so much going on here. You know, the movie actually began, like you said, with the title. My mm-hmm. understanding is that the title came from this article by Inez Wallace. Right. Have you read the original article? Are you familiar with it at all? I haven't. I, I, that's all, what you told me about it is, is all I know. Um, yeah. That's what I've seen, too. And it's credited, you know, based on a story by. But as I understand it, uh, the narrative of I Walked With a Zombie, the movie bears virtually no resemblance whatsoever to what I've heard is described as a fairly exploitative yeah. um, and, and inaccurate article. Yeah. yeah. The Mac and Ardell Ray did their research, I think, because, the, you know, it, it, even something far more recent, like in the 80s when The Serpent of the Rainbow came out, and that was based on a nonfiction book about voodoo, an anthropological book. But it's pretty exploitative, and it definitely skews towards voodoo as evil force. Um, which is just so reductive and so much less interesting than the, the truth about voodoo. It's a pretty psycho-spiritually sophisticated religion that allows, uh, through possession, whether it's literal or figurative, disempowered people to feel empowered, the spirit world to speak and communicate through the living, and cathartic dancing, cathartic possession. I, I think that the, the major religions of the world could probably learn a thing or two about the therapeutic aspects of voodoo. Well, my understanding, at least, I read an essay by Brian Sen. It appears in the book Drums of Terror, Voodoo in Mm -hmm. the Cinema. The way he tells it, the article was used for the title pretty much, and that's it. Siodmik came in, wrote a screenplay that was very similar to White Zombie that ended up getting reworked by Ardell Ray, which is what we've got here. Now, of course, this has all been kind of directed by Luton, who said, well, make it like Jane Eyre. (laughs) <laughs> right. And that's, right. Yeah. That's right. It's Jane Eyre and the West Indies. Yeah. So you've got all this going on, this love triangle happening between, you said, you know, Rand and Holland, and then Betsy Connell, this career woman, this single woman, this Canadian nurse who is looking for work and ends up going from this cold, snowy environment, somewhere right. in Canada, I assume. Right. Ottawa, yeah. Yeah, down to the islands and the potential employer, the person doing the interviewing, actually talks about how wonderful it will be. You'll be sitting underneath a palm tree and drinking right. drinks. You know, you don't have to worry about any of this cold, oppressive weather anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and instead, she finds a, a different kind of oppression. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor thing. I mean, the first time we see Betsy, she's laughing uh, because her employer has asked her to believe in witchcraft. And then we cut right. to Betsy for the first time and we see her laughing. You know, laughter and tears, they don't necessarily mean what you think they're going to mean. On St. Sebastian, people weep when a baby is born. That's also part of the legacy of slavery. Mm-hmm. It's a holdover. It's mm-hmm. still a servant class. They may not be slaves, but they're still a servant class. And, and Alma, the house servant, still weeps when her sister has a baby. You know, they celebrate at death. There are a lot of inversions. The protagonist and heroine is dressed in black. And uh, oh, the yeah. zombie woman, Mrs., uh, Jessica Holland, is dressed in white. Yeah. You know, and that suggests that maybe we need to open our minds, particularly if we're living in 1943, need to open our minds to, you know, what black and white mean in this movie. Two voodoo patches are put on uh, Betsy and Jessica before they go on their walk by Alma. A white patch is put on Betsy and a black patch is is put on Jessica. And the white patch comes off in the brush. Mm -hmm. You know, the white patch does not survive the walk, but the black patch does. That seems symbolic and metaphoric, too. Mm-hmm. Now, when Betsy first meets Paul Holland, it's not in 
uh, St. Sebastian. It's actually on the boat right over. Yep. They're right. on the ship together. And she there's a little bit of narration at the very beginning of the movie and a few spots throughout. And she's doing this narration about the beautiful stars. Over, and, yeah, her voiceover. Yeah. Right. And so there's some interaction here. And right off the bat, Holland's being painted as, I mean, he's not painted as a sympathetic guy. No. And yet she falls in love with him. That's yeah. part of that kind of gothic tradition. It's sort of like um, Mr. Darcy in, in Pride and Prejudice. Paul is the guy who it would be impossible to love, and that's why she falls in love with him. Right. I'm glad you mentioned the voiceover because it, it only lasts for the first 30 out of 70 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it happens fairly often during the first half hour of the movie. And it's at that moment where the voiceover is confessing Betsy's love for Paul, that she finds herself falling in love with him. And she's standing uh, looking out at the sea, which is a nice sort of foreshadow of how and where things are going to end in this movie. But she confesses her love, and then we have no more voiceover from her, which is an interesting choice to suggest, I think, that when you're in love, you no longer have that kind of control that the voiceover suggests, you know, the narrative control. All bets are off once you're in love. It's, it's a kind of hex. It's a kind of spell and she's going to be drawn deeper and deeper in. I often like to focus on what happens at the dead center of a movie. Okay. My, my film study students will always tell you that I'll always mention what happens at the absolute middle of a movie. And here it's Alma saying to Betsy, there are other doctors, there are better doctors, yes. in reference to Dambala and Legba and the voodoo gods. And that's where the die is cast because Betsy hears that, she takes it to heart, she takes Jessica on the walk, and then things start to unravel pretty darn quickly. I love the moment where they are talking about these other doctors, there's other things that can be done, and how these other entities have cured people. And she says, well, right. that's nonsense. Well, he can cure nonsense, too. And it's, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's this witty kind of, there's a witticism, or I don't know if that's quite the right word, but there's a wit to mm-hmm. the dialogue here as well that propels the story forward. I mean, it's so short that there's so much going on. It feels right. like a, a full meal, even though it just runs over an hour. Yeah, it needs to be seen repeatedly. But yeah, it is very clever dialogue. I love the fact that fairly early in the movie, after we've had the first appearance of Jessica in the tower, and by the way, check it out, she's wearing some kind of makeup around her eyes to make yeah. her look a little bit spookier, but only in the, the kind of... Um, not after Paul and Alma sh- uh, and, uh, and the other guys show up. Um, so it, it's very subjective. You, you see her as a monster when the lights are out, but then when the lights come on and help arrives, then you see that she's just this haunted and crazed woman. But, you know, then the two servants are talking, Alma and the man, and he tells her, you know, would you stop crying like that because you upset uh, Miss Connell? And Alma says... Yeah, well, she didn't soothe me any with walking around the tower at all hours, which is a great line, yeah. you know, and, and, and shows that actually this is my island. You know, Elmas seems to be saying this is my island. This is our island. These are our ways. And don't tell me that I should be upsetting the latest white woman who showed up for, for me to serve brioche to. <laughs> <laughs> I did like Alma quite a bit as a character. She did She's strike great. me. As, she struck me as the kind of person who uh, probably more than once let her mouth get her into trouble. She's got a little spunk <laughs> to her. Yeah, <laughs> Teresa Harris is the actress, and she's she's terrific. Yeah, it's a great cast, by the way. Uh, Mrs. Rand, Edith Barrett. Did you know that Edith Barrett was only thirty six when she played the mother of Paul and Wesley, who are played by actors her own age. 
she's wearing old age makeup, and B, she was Mrs. Vincent Price. Yeah, I should know that. Well, you do I, now. I, I, I do now. Thank you. <laughs> you probably did before. <laughs> we can't keep all the trivia in our heads all the time. But yeah, I mean, uh, I, I Edith Barrett was Mrs. Thing. Vincent Price at the time, and she huh. was only 36, made up to look older. But she's got those great, dark, soulful brown eyes. And uh, her, you see her world come apart. I mean, she's fairly um, offensive at a couple of times when she talks about how primitive these people oh, are and how she was afraid for her life. And so she decided to take control by pretending to become um, a voodooist. And guess what happened? <laughs> in for a penny, in for a pound, pretty soon she's believing with every fiber of, of herself. And she's complicit. We have here a love triangle between... Paul, Wesley, and Jessica, but then the mother of Paul and Wesley is also a part of what goes wrong. They all share responsibility. They all share blame. But, but to me, the whole kind of romantic intrigue and adultery plot is just sort of a stand-in and a metaphor for much more serious sins committed by the Holland family since its arrival steering the slave ship. And Betsy, it, it, one nice surprise about the movie, the movie's full of surprises, and one is that I remember the first time I saw it, assuming that there was going to be a love triangle, but it was going to be between Betsy and the two brothers. Right. And it's, it's not at all. Wes has no interest in her beyond some friendly banter and says to his brother outright, you know, you're different from me because I'm not in love with another woman. In other words, I don't have mixed feelings about whether I really want Jessica to return to her senses. Wesley does want her to return to her senses because he's in love with his brother's wife, Jessica, whereas uh, Paul is falling in love with Betsy. So, yeah, the the love triangle here is not where you think it's going to be. It's in the past rather than in the present. And it's got this shadow over it, the shadow of the madness and possible zombification of Jessica Holland. Yeah, it's definitely not your traditional love triangle. Maybe a weird love rectangle thing i don't know it's just it doesn't really have a form it's yeah it's kind of all over the place and you're right the mother's involvement and everything is just like when that i remember the first time when i watched it and that revelation came out yeah like that really kind of kind of blew my mind a little bit too but then of course when you start thinking about it and see the things that she's been doing ever since she was introduced all the things all the things that she said of course it makes sense she's been involved yeah. In a much darker level than we probably all assume watching movies for the first time. She's been trying to use voodoo, yeah. just as uh, her, her family and the Holland family have been trying to use the people, the black people on this island. And what happens is they end up ultimately paying for their crimes. They end up being used because they're dealing with powers far more significant than they are aware. They think it's just crazy superstition. The several characters at different points say, you know, like Paul says to Wesley or Wesley to Paul, we believed that when we were boys, but we don't believe that anymore. Right. Well, <laughs> actually, growing up and reaching maturity might mean being more open to what you've discarded and what you've just assumed um, to be primitivist claptrap. Being a little bit more open, open, to open other ways. and yeah. aware of other things and that sort of yeah. thing. And yeah. her posing, Mrs. Rand posing as something that she's clearly not right. you know, during the ceremony and all that. That's Well, it's offensive. I mean, she has co-opted a religion practically right. here. And it's it goes back to the subjugation of another people, right. lots of, you know, all of that is just laid bare here. 
she does it with best intentions. Sure. That, that's often the case. Yeah. Major yeah. crimes. Exactly. Yeah. And she gets pulled into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she thinks she's in control, but she's ultimately she's being controlled. I love her performance in this. I think the cast, we mentioned earlier, the cast is solid all the way through. Very. I think yeah. Frances D is amazing as a leading lady in this film. She wasn't, Very strong. Very strong. Yeah. She wasn't the original choice. I mean, she kind of came in late. There's somebody else lined up on there. Yeah, I think so. Probably someone more traditional. Um, mm-hmm. she, she's, she's rather diminutive. And in a way, I suppose it might have made more sense to cast a blonde in the role. But Jessica Holland is sort of the white woman. And then Frances D is the outsider. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, but I love the brothers too, Tom Conway and, and James Ellison. Tom Conway is such a terrific British trained actor, and, and often he had terrible roles in terrible movies like Voodoo Woman later. Uh, <laughs> if you've ever seen that, this one where you know he's walking around with a headdress of feathers most of the time, and uh, it's been suggested by some people that probably he's insisted on wearing that as much as possible as a way of covering as much of his face as he could throughout the movie. Um, <laughs> but every now and then he got a role that was worthy of his talents, and I think Paul Holland is his best role. I think it's his masterpiece, and his chemistry is excellent with uh, with Francis D. It's also excellent with James Ellison as, as oh, his yeah. brother. Yeah, yeah. I- Totally bought the relationship of brothers yeah. here, uh, or step brothers, technically. Half brothers, half brothers. Half brothers, half brothers. They have the yeah. same mother and different fathers, yeah. And they do explain why one has an American accent, yes. one has a British accent. So that's right, because, may- because uh, Wesley was educated in America. Right. So, yeah. so and, um, Wolfman, maybe, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. We, right. Uh, Mrs. Rand, uh, she was married to uh, Paul's father. She was a Holland. That's the family that established the slave industry in, in St. Sebastian. And then when uh, Paul's father died, she married a missionary. His last name was Rand, and he died too. And so we see already in the backstory that there's some kind of you know, curse or punishment uh, going on, even if it's not recognized as such. Mrs. Rand has lost two husbands on this island. Mm-hmm. And uh, her, son, her elder son, Paul, has lost his wife. So, um, you know loss is something that they've been inflicting on the people brought over from coastal Africa, and now loss is uh, karmically coming back around. The roosters, or the hens are coming home to roost. Mm -hmm. What was the first thing that went through your mind the first time you saw Darby Jones in this Mm -hmm. movie? Oh, well, when you get the close-ups, you realize that those eyes are fake. Um, (laughs) I think it's a neat effect. The unblinking eye. I mean, what is that saying? Um, He's bearing mute witness to everything that's happened on this island. And he's the instrument of the voodoo community. They send him out to bring Jessica back. He's incredible. So tall, so thin. And by the way, <laughs> the first shot in the movie, which has nothing to do with anything in the timeline that follows, is a long shot of Darby Jones' Carrefour and Betsy Connell walking on the beach side by side while <laughs> we hear the voiceover saying, I walked with a zombie, and then she giggles, and she says, I know it sounds funny. <laughs> and, and what an interesting shot to begin this movie with. It's almost like an implicit message of, of integration and mutual understanding. Because there's certainly no point in the movie where Bessie Connell takes a walk with Carrefour on the beach during the day. That's, that's, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an impressionistic shot that Turner starts with. And if we start with that shot and our bookend is a close-up of T-Misery, 
then, yeah, more and more this does become a movie about race and about trying to understand across the racial divide. I love the reveal of Carrefour when we first see him. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the eyes are, you know, he's an iconic image. And when you think about the zombies in this movie, whether it's a zombie film technically or not, you, you think of Darby Jones. And when you first see him with the, the splash of light from the flashlight at his feet, and then right. you pan up to him. The quick tilt up to show yeah. his face in the flashlight beam. And, oh, and it, so takes Bet- it takes Betsy's breath away. She gasps. And I think the audience gasps, too. And what's wonderful is that he doesn't attack. You know, he's not a monster. The monster is slavery. He's the victim. He's the emblem of that victimization. And he, he's, he's the guide at the crossroads, you know, and, and he, he allows them passage. Then he comes back to reclaim the dead for the dead. He certainly never kills anyone. It's Wesley, not Carrefour, that kills Jessica. And then Carrefour brings her back. That's 1943, and, and think of how it's turning on its head the racial stereotypes. Think of Birth of a Nation and, and all the other crap out there oh, that wow. was suggesting yeah. that white women had to fear for their lives, the, uh, the lusty um, black buck, you know. And yet Turner puts Jessica in Carrefour's arms at the end and has Carrefour bring her back to Fort Halland, almost as if to say, you caused this, not me. Right. You know, I will deliver her back to you now, but you're responsible. It had nothing to do with black lust or, or, or so-called primitivism. Uh, the, the wages of, of this sin are your own. You know, I'm reading between the lines, and I'm, I'm reading a lot between the lines, but I don't think that I'm, I'm getting carried away here uh, because you know, I've seen the movie 20 times and read about <laughs> it and thought about it. And, and you know, <laughs> if people disagree me, with me, they can say whatever you say, just like uh, the carriage driver says to <laughs> Betsy Connell, whatever you say, miss, whatever you exactly. say. <laughs> <laughs> loves a good voodoo movie. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in part two of this week's episodes of Monster Kid Radio. That'll be coming out in two days. We're going to talk about voodoo films, voodoo and cinema. He's even going to mention a movie from the 70s that has zombies in it that I really like as well. So it'll be a fun time, and I invite you to join us back here at monsterkidradio.net in a couple of days for episode number 49 Big thanks to Paul for joining us on Monster Kid Radio this week. Again, you can find him at paulmccamas.com. Find out about all of his books. Find out about what he's got going on. And if you happen to pick up a book from him, tell him Monster Kid Radio sent you. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Chest Crawl. That belongs to the band Guantanamo Baywatch. It appears in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, you can find it on their album Chest Crawl. Talk to you in a couple of days. (laughs) 